You are listening to Travel to Tomorrow, a podcast on the future of travel and tourism. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mary Hardy, the CEO of the Pacific Asia Travel Association. And my guest this week uh, for this podcast is uh, Mr. Mike Malik uh, from a company called Sirium in the aviation sector. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for a number of years. We've actually worked together. Actually, I think Mike was even my boss for a period of time uh, a number of years ago. Uh, but um, Mike, I know you've worked for some uh, big brands in the past where Sabre, Travelport, uh, Aloha Airlines, and many other uh, large brands in the aviation sector. But t- tell us a little bit more about your background in, in the aviation sector. Well, very nice to talk to you again, Mario. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, I, as you know, I am a glutton for punishment. I've been in the airline industry all my life, uh, seen lots of ups and downs. Um, I'm currently uh, working for Sirium with, as the chief marketing officer there. And, uh, but previously, um, I've had the good fortune to work with a number of different uh, larger companies like Sabre and uh, travel port and uh, you know uh, I was also associated with uh, a company that we started up called Max Jet Airways in Washington DC an all business class airline and uh, that was an interesting experience because starting an airline is like starting a small company a country sorry and um, it's as difficult as it can get but uh, what an experience so I've had some good experiences I've enjoyed every moment of it and we're going through another downturn in the industry, which we're going to navigate through. So tell, tell me actually, Mike, what's uh, in, in your career in, in uh, the aviation sector, what is your most uh, successful story that you're really proud of? Yeah, I, I, I've had a, a few successes. The, the, the things that really stick in my mind are the work that uh, I did with Cathay Pacific Airways in making sure that their uh, executive management was uh, uh, understanding of the new technologies at that time that were going to be implemented and uh, worked across the operational area, the revenue management area, maintenance operations. That was good uh, to take an airline uh, completely from one uh, sector to a completely different uh, area of uh, technology. And um, what was your your you know, biggest challenge you've ever faced uh, so far? Uh, well, Mario, you've been in the industry as long as I have, I think. And the challenges are that every, uh, every few years, there's uh, some sort of uh, trouble that hits and there's the demand disappears and then you have to pull the uh, companies back out again. Uh, so it goes up and down. So the challenges, uh, I guess 9-11 was one of the biggest challenges. And then uh, the 2008 crisis, uh, Financial crisis was a, a challenge. Um, the thing I hate, obviously, is uh, w- working on this uh, the airline side and then having to manage these downturns, which uh, require you know furloughs and uh, uh, bankruptcies, etc. So you have to navigate through those. Yeah, the last uh, couple of years, I think the airlines have been very fortunate. Things were doing, going well for for most of them. Uh, you know. Oil price was reasonable, and uh, businesses were, uh, you know, making profit, which is a, a a word we don't hear very often in the airline industry. Um, and sadly, we have this big event just happened, and obviously now um, it's a big struggle again. Uh, as you said, the airline industry seems to go to cycles, um, 
and now is probably one of the most challenging times we've we've experienced in the industry for as far as I can remember. Um, it's incredible times. Incredible. Uh, yeah. the, the, the last 10 years have been phenomenal, though. Uh, it's the longest stretch I've seen of uh, profitability. And, uh, uh, and, you know, the numbers were uh, incredible when you look back at them. Uh, but uh, you're right. It's a, it's a real shame as to what's happening right now. Uh, we just have to navigate through that. Yes. Well, uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks and months. But as you said, uh, there's still a lot of... Uh, roadblocks ahead of us and, and uh, surmounting this uh, big challenge that we have at the moment. And in, in, in relation to this, you know, and uh, a question that is most likely in everyone's mind at the moment is what will change and what will remain the same uh, moving forward? Ah, yes. Well, like you say, we're dealing with what we call an extreme or out of boundary situation. So your standard forecasting models are not going to work. And, um, you know, there will be changes in the way we physically travel by wearing masks and social distancing, etc. And although, you know, this, this event is not in the same league as anything we've seen before, if you think back to 9-11 and the immediate changes uh, after that uh, took place, you know, the additional security, the, the lack of access to the flight deck, the air marshals that were on board the aircraft, uh, those all became pretty normal and that we don't think of them as radical changes anymore. So I know there's going to be a shakeup and it will impact every aspect of the, of air travel as we know it, but the, and the recovery is going to take some time. So it's going to take between 18 months to three years to get back to 2019 levels from what people are saying. Um, but I think um, the thing that we need to understand is that uh, you know, people are going to wait to travel. Uh, IATA's, the International Travel Association, found that 40% uh, of travelers are going to wait about six months before, after the virus is contained, before they're even going to fly. So uh, there's a lot of changes coming. Um, I, I, I guess the, the thing that you're asking is, what, what do I physically see things changing to? Well, I think the aircraft are going to get reconfigured. I think there's going to be more premium seating on aircraft. And I think that would probably be because of the requirement for increased revenue because of the spaced out seating in the back of the aircraft. Um, in Asia Pacific, which is your area, I think uh, there's a fashion for all economy affairs uh, being inclusive. I think that'll probably get unbundled like the rest of the world where you pay for leg room, meals, baggage, etc. And because of the increased hygiene requirements, there's going to be systems and technologies put in place. I think you'll see touchless seats like um, that are controlled by your Bluetooth device, so you can lower the back of your seat, fold your tray, touchless lavatories. Uh, there are some airlines already in, uh, investing in uh, uh, that kind of technology, but also uh, you may be able to pay for pay extra for having the seat next to you free. Uh, there's going to be more regimented boarding procedures, so you're not uh, uh, too close to another person. And we'll come, you know, full circle with facial recognition as well. I think facial recognition through the customs and boarding processes will take place. But that's going to be an interesting thing because everybody's going to be wearing masks as well. So I think long term, Mario, the things are going to, um, they're going to look very different. 
but they will become norm and uh, everyone will work it into their, their, their process. I, I think that's what you can expect. Wow, seems actually that travel is going to be uh, forever more complicated moving forward or certainly uh, probably expected to be at the airport for several hours before uh, than what we, we were uh, doing before. Before that, people were saying three hours. I guess now we'll probably need to be there four hours or longer to go through all this process. Do you know, there was a test done recently in Dubai uh, for Emirates where all the passengers of a specific flight were tested for COVID-19 before they boarded. And um, they're not clear as how long that would take if we uh, tested everyone before they got on a plane. Uh, but uh, I just think that's not a something that's doable long term. Um, in China, people are carrying QR codes now on their uh, devices so that, uh, you know, you, you can be pre-screened before you get on a flight or into a public uh, site. Uh, so we may see that as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before that actually, you know, airlines will have to uh, consider reconfiguring the, the aircraft uh, to for social distancing and et cetera. Uh, possibly, you know, more... Uh, premium seats available in aircraft uh, obviously means actually price uh, will go up for, for consumers, uh, I, I believe. Um, but how, when we talk about reconfiguring an aircraft or an entire fleet, how long does that take? Well, uh, well, it depends when they go in for uh, their regular maintenance. I think most of these aircraft, if you're reconfiguring them, you'll do it during regular maintenance while other maintenance is uh, going on and uh, the interior configuration can take place at that time. So it's, it's going to be piecemeal as it, as it happens. But it was, a, it was a discussion point that we had with um, some of our customers that that might be something that they would be considering because at, at some point you've got to make up the loss in revenue uh, on the aircraft, you can't fly uh, an aircraft with, uh, you know, uh, low artificially capped, uh, artificially capped uh, load factors. For example, in, in the UK, EasyJet has already said that they will not book the middle seat. Now, if you do that, that's, you capture a load factor at 67%. You can't make money doing that. So you've got to make it up some other way. So there's some sort of balance that you've got to strike in reconfiguring the aircraft to make up that revenue. Do you think actually that the LCCs will, will have more challenges in this, in this crisis than, than uh, traditional carriers? Depends what comes back first. Uh, if it's leisure traffic, then uh, and LCCs are positioned to take that uh, on quicker and then business traffic will follow later. It will take a little bit longer for the traditional carriers with um, multi-class configurations to come back. Mm. So, um, you know, wh what do you think will be the immediate challenge for airlines and airports, you know, when, when they're given the green lights? So, say next month, next month uh, some countries started to reopen or allow actually flights to take off again. You know, in your opinion, what will be the immediate challenge for both airlines and airports? Mm. So, um, look, the, the biggest challenge for anybody right now is passenger demand. If passenger demand doesn't come back, it's pointless even having the discussion. So the first challenge is passenger demand. Then bringing aircraft back into service efficiently 
If you look at the pictures which uh, are online, you'll see that there's aircraft all over the world in different states of maintenance cycles. So you have to decide which aircraft to pull back into service so that uh, you, you have sufficient cycles on them before their next maintenance uh, routine um, that they can fly. But at the same time, if you look at the way they're stacked, you can't get to some of those planes without uh, moving the others out of the way as well. So there's a huge logistical challenge. Then the actual schedule itself. Schedule is what we sell as an airline. That's the product, you know, the, that's the capacity we sell. So um, right now, everything is structured based on current demand patterns. Those demand patterns are going to change. So therefore, you know, will it be hub and spoke as, as we know it, or will it become a point-to-point -point, uh, uh, schedule network that, we, that comes, uh, comes to fruition as demand comes back? Then there's the financing you know, supporting the viability of operations that the, the state is going to fund, how long is that going to last? And then the implementation of new hygiene standards. So those are the kinds of challenges that both airlines and airports are going to have to grapple with. Um, but demand is the key, Mario, you know that. If demand doesn't come back, we're all lost. And, and just to, you know, give, give the audience an understanding that fares are usually set to stimulate demand. So, you know, if you lower the fare, then you stimulate demand. And if you put restrictions in, it raises the cost of travel. So the fact is that uh, lower cost of air travel, are, you know, weak demand, which is what we've got, low fuel prices, which is what we have, and excess capacity, which is what we're going to have. So that would indicate to us that uh, the fares are gonna come down. But the other problem is that now we require social distancing. So the art, there's artificially, capacity is artificially capped in an aircraft. Then there's sanitation required in the turnaround of the aircraft. You know, we used to have 20 minute turnarounds in various parts of the, uh, of the world for uh, LCCs. Um, that turnaround time, if you're going to sanitize an aircraft is no longer there. So we have to look at that. And then airports have to put in a lot more uh, processing, uh, you know, processing requirements. So infrastructure charges are going to rise. So it's anybody's guess what's going to happen. But again, demand is demand. If demand is there, then we can all work around that. Yeah, turnaround time was actually something I actually wanted to to bring up. So I'm glad you actually raised this. Is you know because as you said at the moment, uh, LCC is kind of expected to do a, a turnaround in 20 minutes. How much longer do you think it will be required um, moving forward? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You, you know, the, the, it depends upon the process that is defined, that is, uh, that is um, the authorities say is the appropriate process. You've got, if you're sanitizing every seat, every armrest at every turn, uh, that's going to take time. Yeah. And, um, I, 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 I do believe it's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, it, it's, it's all the procedures you were mentioning before about uh, the health checks at the airports, the possibilities of having to be tested before you, you travel. Um, now, I think before airports, some airports have uh, challenges in terms of uh, utilizations and, and capacity uh, because of the number of aircraft. But in this instance, I think it has to be more about human capacity to process uh, all these, these additional um, procedures that will be required to, to sanitize, to uh, check the passengers as they come in and out and transit in the airports. 
uh, will likely be more of a challenge moving forward than, than what it was before. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. You're right. Hey, Mario, you know, one thing that we, we always for, we're forgetting right now is the fact that there were a few other things that are going to be uh, rearing their heads again, and that is the increased environmental pressure. You know, the thing is, as governments give um, this debt relief to or cash relief to um, the airlines, they may impose sustainability covenants uh, uh, before they give that aid out. And then there's consumer behavior as well. Uh, are consumers initially going to travel as uh, far and as much? And, and then there's the business models. You know, uh, will low-cost carriers push the sector towards commoditization? Or are we going to go back to a revival of highly differentiated market? We don't know. So those are the other things that, um, that come to mind as we look at what the challenges are. Yeah, I mean, certainly from, you know, you were, you were talking about before having the trust of, of the passengers, the people wanted to travel. And we conducted a survey uh, at the early stage of the crisis, uh, maybe about a month after it really started to kick in, um, in China specifically, because uh, as, as you probably know, China has been dominating in terms of outbound uh, travel market. Uh, for for a number of years, and uh, numbers keeps increasing all the time, or were uh, before the crisis, and so every destination is really keen to know if if Chinese will restart traveling in the future as much as they did before. And in our survey, it was interesting because the majority of of uh, Chinese are actually desperate to leave the country to travel overseas again to go and enjoy uh, leisure travel as much as they did before. Obviously, they're all waiting on. Uh, borders to be opened and uh, for the ability to be able to travel overseas. But the desire to travel is actually certainly there at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see as, as borders start to open again. Uh, so when, um, obviously, we as an organization, our focus is, is entirely on leisure travel, on, on tourism, or in some cases, what we also call leisure, uh, people going for business and staying a couple of days, uh, which is typically what, uh, what I've been doing quite a lot over the recent years, uh, especially when I went to new places, I would take the opportunity to stick around for a bit longer. But in, in, in your opinions, you know, what will actually come first, the business travel or leisure? And then, then you think, you know, we'll have as much business travel as we had before? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think Right now, it, it's going to have to be leisure traffic and flights that are close to your home uh, geography. And the main reason for that is that international flights have not opened. Even in China, <clears throat> either domestic flights have opened up. You're not, they're not, each airline is permitted only one international flight a, a week. And so that discourages business travel. The other thing that discourages business travel is a cross-border uh, requirement uh, at many countries right now that um, requires self-quarantine for 14 days before you get in. So yes, it's going to be domestic um, uh, leisure traffic that is going to uh, drive a majority uh, of the demand. But uh, you know, we are human and we have a pent-up demand to get outside now. And it, whether it be go to a restaurant, spend money, or get on a flight, which is secondary, um, th there's going to be some uh, pent-up demand that's going to be released for leisure traffic, uh, visiting friends and family, etc. 
and you know in 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 your opinion which regions of the world will actually you know be the first one to to kickstart again or restart well this is the um so one of the research things that we do as a company at Sirium is we we obviously have a lot of data and information that uh, drives uh, our understanding of trends. We we are very loath to say forecasting because it depends upon the scenarios and there are too many external factors. But we can intelligently provide trends and where directionally things are going. So. Let me start by telling you that what IATA, the International Air Transport Association, in December 2019 forecast for 2020 as the global capacity growth again. Because remember, 10 years we've had this growth uh, in the uh, travel air travel sector. They were forecasting 4.7% growth. And the current scheduled expectations of cumulative year-over-year decline of 33% is now going to be forecast for 2020 in June. So from going from 4.7%, we're now at minus 33% as a forecast, which is pretty pretty uh, phenomenal. Um, so although, I, in answer to your question, although you know the recovery will differ from country to country, we are going to get out there and travel. Human beings are, are social animals. Um, I think, like I said, domestic travel is going to come back first. But um, what we decided to do is to start looking at uh, flight schedules. And flight schedules are, obviously, you and I know, for the audience, it's, uh, if you file a flight schedule, it's the product of the airline. And you can only, uh, as a customer, get to the flight schedule if you're going to book uh, if, you can only get a seat if the flight schedule is actually physically filed. So we get to see all the flight schedules that are filed and it's a surrogate for the capacity uh, out there. And because the airline files that flight schedule, there's an expectation that demand is going to be there to fill those flights. So what we started to do was to monitor the four major regions, domestic China, intra-Europe, intra-Asia, US domestic, realizing that international is not coming back right now. Um, and what we found, and I'll tell you a little story of each of those, domestic China started <coughs> cutting their capacity in the middle of January. And at their lowest point around the 20th of February, they had cut their capacity by 75% and then started edging upwards. Now they're projected uh, by the end of June to be 5% above their capacity year over year which is quite interesting. Intra-Asia started their, cutting their schedules in last week of January and hit bottom around the middle of May with an 80% reduction overall, and they began to rise after that. Intra-Europe, uh, they cut their capacity in March, and then in late Europe had lost about 90% of their capacity. And US domestic cut their capacity much later at the beginning of March. We're always late to the game, as you know. And uh, so we're in early May, about last week or so, about 65% capacity reduction. So cutting a long story short, where are we going to be capacity-wise by the end of June, which is your question. Who's going to come back first? Well, those who went in first are going to come out first, except for the fact that Europe actually beats out Asia here. So first of all, domestic China will be around 5% more, like I mentioned previously, of capacity than it was last year at that time. 
Intra-Europe is going to be 5% under. Intra-Asia, which is your interest, is going to be 18% under and of last year. And US domestic is going to be 26% under by that time frame in June, which is what you would expect because of the cycles of when they actually did the lockdowns and uh, came at, are going to come out of it. Now you think that China, with its 5% increase in uh, uh, capacity out there, is doing really well. There's a caveat, because if you look at early part of January and you look at their aircraft utilization, which is a number of hours they fly an aircraft on average, it was 8.5 hours a day. In June, it's 5.5 hours. So even though they've added more capacity, the aircraft are flying less hours. So is that good? Is that bad? I, I, I don't know. And the other thing you need to bear in mind is even though these air airlines have filed their schedules, which gives us an indication, oh, things are returning back to normal as the curves are rising. As they get closer to the actual flying date, right now, 20% of the flight schedules are being canceled on a near-term basis globally. Pretty interesting, huh? I, it is. I mean, I, as you said, both you and I actually work in, in, in this sector, specifically looking at the airline schedules yeah. before. And um, I just can't imagine actually our, 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 our old uh, team members that are actually processing all of this data at the moment and the frequency of changes that are actually happening and the volume of changes is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. You, you've mentioned about uh, Sirium, and, I, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes because I'd like to, for you to share with us a little bit more about the company. Uh, but while we're actually on this topic of, of regions and travels and et cetera, I'd like to share some to, something with you, which is a perspective that the global organizations are actually have in, in mind at the moment. This is a view that is shared by ourselves, uh, Pacific Asia Travel Association, the uh, WTTC, the World Travel Tourism Councils, and the United Nations World Tourism Organization. That what we, we foresee moving forward, at least for the, from a tourism point of view, is also from a business travel point of view, is that um, countries or destinations will open initially for domestic tourism. Uh, we, we know that uh, for Thailand, we expect, we hope that actually domestic tourism will restart again in June. Um, if not at the very latest in July. Uh, we certainly hope for that because we desperately need it. Uh, I certainly need uh, a, a little bit of holiday out of the city and uh, really, key, really keen for that to come back as soon as possible. Um, and, but also next to this is, you know, we, we, we also see that uh, a little bit later on, uh, maybe two or three months after that, we expect regional travel to actually start. Um, and we don't expect international travel, long haul travel, to probably restart for much later in the year. Um, most likely what we actually see is that there will be FITs and families traveling first, business travel, of course, uh, but group travel or mass travel uh, tourism, we don't expect this to come back until 2021 and possibly even longer at some point. Uh, because of all the uncertainty around the vaccine immunity and the measures being taken, and the risk and the fear of having second wave and third wave of pandemic restarting again, as we're now starting to see in some destinations and et cetera. Um, but there's been this discussion in Australia and New Zealand of this bubble, um, and which is actually interesting for me because in the early stage of the crisis, um, 
I wasn't referring to it as a bubble, but I was actually talking about corridors where uh, countries might actually agree on bilateral agreements uh, if they're actually COVID free to allow citizens of their respective countries to travel between them. So I can give you an example here in Southeast Asia where uh, Vietnam is now COVID free. Uh, Thailand is gradually improving and moving in the right directions. Cases are reducing all the time. And likely in the next couple of months, we also be COVID free or very close to it. So potentially you could see a corridor or a bubble, if you prefer to call it, between the two countries where there's an agreement that says, well, we'll allow you know, Thai residents to travel to Vietnam and Vietnamese to travel to Vietnam, vice versa. Um, but there may be some conditions, conditions that actually you won't allow other countries to come in into your respective countries that you may think is a risk to you. Um, so potentially we could see a lot of different corridors and bubbles opening up like this. How, how would this actually, you know, if this is a, a real scenario, how would this actually impact the airlines? Yeah, it, what, what will happen is the route structures would change, wouldn't they? They, uh, they would, the hub and spoke that people are used to and the standard processes where um, demand has, uh, has been established, that all changes. It's all up for, uh, up for grabs. Um, you mentioned a word the, uh, earlier on in this discussion, uh, a reset. You're right, there's a massive reset. Uh, this is an opportunity for airlines and airports to rethink their uh, business models. It can't be business as normal. And what you're describing is a change in the demand characteristics of the industry. And whether they are short-term and then uh, become long-term in their structure, uh, we don't know. But the question is, what, what you had as a network is going to change uh, as an airline? Now, there, here, here's a really difficult question, uh, but one that is in, in everybody's mind at the moment is about liquidity and the financial state of, of many airlines around the world. Um, out of this crisis, who will survive? And I'm not asking for names of carriers, but more, you know, <laughs> what, <laughs> I wouldn't dare asking, but, but, and, and, but who, what type of airlines were or are going to yeah. survive this type of crisis? What are the criteria for an airlines to come out of this? And, and yeah. yeah, you're right. It's a very hard question. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> so, Look, let, let me frame it first so that we understand what we're dealing with here. You know, the um, IATA, as I keep mentioning, we, International Air Transport Association estimates that, you know, the airlines are going to lose about $314 billion of revenue this year. And that's, uh, so they're going to end up with 55% of less than what they made in 2019. Um, and they've estimated that the uh, they were going to require government aid of $200 billion. Uh, we employ in the industry 25 million jobs. So there's enormous pressure to find an answer. Um, the global passenger demand has halved in March, and that's the biggest slump in a decade. Uh, passenger demand measured uh, in total revenue passenger kilometers, which is the measure that we use, RPKs, fell to 53% for the same period earlier this year. So, yeah, it's a bad dire picture. So some of the biggest carriers, um, I, I'm always saddened by this, um, uh, you know, go, go into bankruptcy. One example is Virgin Australia, as you may have heard, they've gone into receivership. 
And May 10th, just a couple of days ago, Abiyanka went into chapter 11. We don't know how that's going to fare, but they just celebrated their 100 year anniversary, which is really sad. So uh, I, I wanted to set the stage to tell you how dire the situation is. There has been state interventions. Um, in, in a business, when you have a poor financial situation, what you do is you look to merge, you look to partner, join forces, and um, you need uh, cash relief. Um, the problem is there's no one to merge with, partner with, or join forces with here. Everyone's in the same, uh, same situation with this pandemic. And because the restriction of movement of passengers, there's no demand. So that's the major problem. That's why air, the, the companies uh, had to turn to the governments to support them. Now, your question is, who's gonna survive and who isn't gonna survive? There's a utility requirement here as well, because if we let all these airlines uh, le left them to their own devices, they would probably have to shut down because they could not bear the financial burden on a daily basis that they're having to bear right now. I'll give you an example. American Airlines is burning through $70 million US dollars uh, a day and United at $50 million a day and Southwest uh, between 30 and $35 million a day just in May. That's not sustainable. So the government has to step in. So on the one side, you have to have the airlines as infrastructure, as a utility to operate and the governments have to prop them up. On the other side, there are, there are companies who don't qualify for that and they will end up not getting subsidies like, um, uh, like Virgin Australia. So the ones that get propped up and can survive it will, will pass through and there'll be others on the periphery that have, the good, uh, have been good at um, uh, marshalling their cash in, in, a, in a way that they preserved it um, that, that could survive and wait for demand to come back. So that's my answer to you. I hope that makes sense. No, very, very well diplomatically answered question. <laughs> <laughs> you and I can have an offline discussion and have a bet about which one's later on maybe. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but on the, on, on the uh, you, you, you have mentioned something which I believe is actually very critical too, is that uh, uh, we, we tend to forget that for some destinations, um, actually airlines are critical. Uh, uh, you use the word utility. Um, and if you think of Pacific Islands, if you think of my own country, Canada and the North, uh, where the only way to travel out of the regions uh, or out of the island if you're in the Pacific is actually the carrier uh, uh, that, are, that are actually serving this route. In some of the Pacific Islands, there are actually only one carrier serving the route. So if that carrier yeah. goes, you're going back to actually having ships to travel across, um, as some of them did for four centuries before. Uh, so it's not sustainable uh, moving forward. Many of these islands are actually living out of tourism. Uh, their, their economy is primarily driven by, uh, by tourism. Without the carrier, um, economy goes collapse completely. Uh, so. It is very interesting time, as you mentioned. Um, as we're getting near a close, Mike, I, I'd, I'd like you to uh, just tell us a little bit more about uh, Sirium, the company you currently work uh, for, and some of the interesting work that uh, many parts of your business are actually involved in at the moment. 
Sure, sure. I'd love to. So, you know, Cerium is a part of a very large uh, company called Relix, R-E-L-X. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's based in London. We have 12 offices around the world. Um, and our mission is basically to accelerate the industry's digital transformation. And I know that's an overused term, but we, um, we actually adhere to it. Our, our objective as, as a company is to make sure that we allow data to flow fluently around uh, the system and make it available where and when it's needed and have it fed to systems and services where it will be created or consumed. Um, let me give you an example. We house um, in our Sirium core about 200 sources of data from all corners of the aviation industry. And um, when the system was fully operational, the air travel system was fully operational, we tracked 120,000 flights and accumulated about um, 22 million flight events per day, 77 million positional events per day, and 100 million events in total per day. That gives you a completely 360 degree view of a flight. In addition, another example is that we get the schedules for airlines, 900 airlines around the world, that's 90% of the world's um, airlines feed us information. And um, so we know we have a lot of data. Um, so we have scheduling information, fleet information, flight information, fare, aeronautical trip. We have so much data that no one else comes near us. And our, our job is not to just uh, hold on to it. We merge it, we curate it, we make intelligent use of it, and then people consume it. Our job is to be the fuel for the industry so that people make good decisions and uh, better decisions for, for their businesses. That's, that's our objective. We have a consulting wing as well, but we are also known as the top provider for aircraft values. Every aircraft that's flying, we have an aircraft value for uh, and banks and lessors come to us to understand um, what a specific asset is worth. So that's, that's what we do. Our job is to make sure that the industry has the information it needs to make good decisions and we become the independent uh, uh, advisor to the industry. I think in this, in this uh, particular time that having uh, insights and having this information is, is critical uh, for, for many businesses, for many players in the sector. And often we think of you know, air, airlines or airports as, as, a, as a single business, but there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of other businesses that are actually dependent on, on air travel, the aircraft manufacturers, parts manufacturers, um, yes. uh, lessers and uh, so many other businesses are actually involved in, in, the, in the provision of these services and uh, we all know how uh, capital intensive is actually running an airline or, or even an airport for that matter. Uh, so exactly that, and, and the, numbers, uh, the numbers I just shared with you for those airlines, American, United and Southwest, to be, to be losing 70 to $50 million a day. Those are just astronomical numbers. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so capital intensive. Yeah. When, when, when you talk to people that are actually outside of, our, uh, of this sector about this, these range of numbers, they just can't believe uh, how, uh, how much is actually going into uh, running an airline. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, Mike, that's, what I, that's, actually, what I, that's, 
That's what I started off saying initially when I mentioned that airline MaxJet we started. It, running an airline is like running a small country. It really is. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I, I must admit that actually when, uh, when we agreed to do this, this uh, call together, this podcast, um, I was a little bit nervous. And the reason is that I actually I left this sector now almost seven years ago. And uh, talking to a, to a professional like you who's been in it for, for a long time, I had to refresh my memory a little bit uh, for, for making sure I get this conversation right today. Uh, but I've truly enjoyed it. I've brought back a lot of memories. Uh, and, uh, but also at the same time, I think it was very uh, insightful uh, for our audience. I hope everyone's enjoyed it, enjoyed their time. And I do have one last question for you, which you did not expect. Ah. Um, where will you and your family travel next when this is all over? Ah, uh, very good question. Um, Hawaii. The reason is I lived there for five years. Uh, had some of the best times of my life there. I miss it intensely, and uh, it will be great to go back. Uh, go back there again. It's just a, a wonderful place. Mario, I want to say something. So, sure. in closing, I am an optimist. We spoke about a lot of things that are going wrong in this environment. Um, I am an optimist. I believe in this industry. I believe in the ability for us to bounce back. I've never seen demand drop like this ever in my life. So have you. And uh, with the ups and downs that we've been through, I believe in the human spirit and the need to socialize and have contact. We will start traveling again. And it may take longer to come back, but we'll get used to these new processes. And uh, um, I just wish everybody well. We all need a bit of optimism these days. So again, uh, Mike Malik from uh, Serium, uh, Chief Marketing Officer, a brilliant marketeer, by the way. I see your, your, market, your marketing initiatives at the moment, uh, as always, have always been very interesting. It's been a great pleasure to, to have you with us today. And um, as you said, uh, stay safe and uh, so we can all travel very soon again. Thank you very much. Thank you.